But if you can see the spirit realm kind of conversation is that, yeah, you have what I call the realm of circles, which the realm of circles is our world built out of Tauruses, right? The material world that is built out of yin and yang Tauruses that create a sphere. So in Japanese, spirit is called Tama, or Tama means ball. So this world that we live in is made of balls. I think the Rosicrucians say this too. The world's made of spheres, made of balls, made of Tauruses. And I think the world made of balls is fundamentally different from the world made of squares because the metaverse is made of squares. So I don't know if people are catching on, but we're living in a war of worlds between the world of balls and the world of cubes. And our nervous system is getting used to being able to process data that's made out of squares, converted into the realm of balls, but still a lot closer to the realm of squares. And we're literally getting our systems used to that And that is actually a lot of the conflict. It's literally a battle between shapes. Greetings, future fossils, and welcome back to episode 198 of the podcast that explores our place in time for part two of our discussion with Tadaki Izumi about Japanese esoterica and how Shinto informs their understanding of the evolving digital verses and our place in them and the relationship between the digital realms and the analog realms. But before we go there, I need to give an exuberant thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show on Patreon or on Substack and including the newest supporters, Agent M83, my old friend, Anna Donaher, Silverback Shaman, Michael Morgenstern, yes, 154, listen to that episode, it's great, Ariel Ali, amazing visionary artist, Cody Kuyak, Harry Duncan, and all the people who have been buying my music on Bandcamp, rock on, thank you, last night, I led a band of 10 people through an extraordinary three hours of improvised music. I cannot tell you how amazed I am at the quality of talent and all of the amazing people I find myself surrounded by, not just musicians, but also visual artists and the dancers that were involved in this event last night. And we are doing more of these now on a monthly basis here in Santa Fe. And I'm going to be trying to record as much of it as I can, share as much of it as I can. So if you're into art, ritual, magic, music as kind of church, really, then drop on in michaelgarfield.substack.com or patreon.com slash michaelgarfield, whichever. They're loosely equivalent. And with that, thank you very much. I'm not going to waste any more time. This is an extraordinary discussion. I want you to enjoy it. Tada Hazumi. The internet needs shamans. It needs to be a shamanic internet. Like I think, I don't think, I don't think that's new or like revolutionary to say, but yeah, there's a certain kind of yin yang magic, or a certain kind of ancient magic that works really well for this situation. It's like designed for it. Pretty much, if we actually really get into it, that's kind of like how it is. 
And I think one thing of AI art, that was like an interesting conversation that's been like spreading around you. But I think, for example, a lot of people are into this whole thing around what can AI art do or not do? And everybody's like, oh, we don't want AI art to do this. It's amazing AI art does that. And I think that's actually not really the conversation personally, I think we should be having too much of. That's like the spectacle, right? But the actual aspect of art that is both wonderful and horrible and beautiful and big is its ability to move synchronous fields. So its ability of art to move fields, a causal fields of information, that's the thing. So our question is really, is can, how much can AI art move a causal information fields? How much can they direct synchronicity? And how much is that already happening? Because I think that's actually the question. We're getting lost in the weeds. What can I do? Yeah, I can spit you out this gorgeous picture of yourself or something, but that's not actually what it's trying to do. That's not the purpose of art. It never has. Jamie Curcio wrote this piece about this. It was that you will see man-made horrors beyond your comprehension, making a kind of a similar point to some of the stuff I've been urging people to consider, which is that there is something, whether you want to talk about it, is in order to understand this technology, you have to understand that it relies on the production of Gaussian noise. There is an inherently random or there's a component that is completely out of your control, no matter how carefully constructed your prompting of these tools is. What is that piece? Because for the same reason that it works as an oracular instrument, waves on a pond or whatever, it's like a chaos theory thing, right? Like on some level, it's deterministic. Whether you mean it, it's deterministic in the sense that you're talking about causality with like a linear time flow, or whether you mean it in this, this other sense that it involves whole different causal flows moving in different directions. You step out and you can see these loops or higher dimensional manifolds of causality. The case remains that in a chaos theoretical sense, these are still deterministic systems, but epistemically, we can't get there. We cannot accurately model them with the level of completeness required in order to understand them like the founders of modern pre-20th century physics believed that if only you could see everything, then you'd be able to predict everything. If every, if, you, if only you could know the state. And then it, the, the whole mindfuck of quantum physics was fundamental uncertainty was that like, if you measure one thing, then you can't measure the other thing. And so you can't ever actually get that complete thing. So we know, and perhaps there are other beings in the cosmos, the way that Stuart Davis talks about his mantis experiences, they see time from above the playing field rather than on it. But they see time oh, as like this like spiral taffy thing. And like they, they're, they're experiencing past, present, and future in our frame of reference all at once. But at any rate, so that the AI art piece of it, it's interesting that basically there's n this tool depends on like the deliberate technologization of something like TV static, which you read you know, like Eric Davis's book, High Weirdness, and he talks about how Phil Dick and his, his wife, Jennifer Dump, talks about hypnagogia and liminal dreaming and like getting into the space where you're kind of using the TV static of your own half asleep brain for prophetic or visionary purposes. And so this is a, a thing where I agree with you that there's no way to rigorously talk about this stuff without also talking about the way that this is why Christianity in particular considered 
dice to be a tool of the devil. Interesting. That like this, you're playing with randomness here and randomness is a portal into it's not actually random it's just something that you fundamentally can't understand and so so you're playing with fire basically like you are inviting in things over which you have no control and cannot understand the church doesn't like you using anything where you can have chance communicate through you synchronous that would introduce an information field that is not of the church's design. This is something I thought about is, but of course, if you roll a dice, eventually all sides are going to come out one six. Right? <laughs> yeah. but somehow that arrangement at that one six actually has meaning in like the parallel universe of information and mm. cause of guilt. So that's actually, yeah, that's a big part of the yin yang magic tradition. So the kookiest thing that I've, or one of the kookiest things I've seen recently was somebody posted to Facebook a Christian Ouija board where you can use the Ouija board to communicate to Christ. And I was like, boy, does that seem kind of, that seems contradictory, to, like historically ignorant or something. You realize that the Ouija, like they were trying to make this thing that fundamentalists since the invention of the Ouija board have considered a demonic instrument into an angelic or Christic instrument. And it's just, it's I just, good luck with that. Because the whole point is my friends who use those kinds of like scrying tables, they're like, you don't necessarily invite stuff in, but you don't necessarily determine at the outset which spirits you're going to be talking to a lot like the internet itself so it's like the christ ouija board is just like such a such a misguided effort on some level because especially because you like that's exactly the thing is you're gonna think you're talking to jesus are you yeah i'm sorry we've led i've led right way off the path here i want to wrap this into because we talked about that the ouija board and how we a lot of people use the internet or and this is like one of the things i want Folks at home, <laughs> folks at home to think about, uh, to feel through. So I used to collect records. I don't, I don't know if you did, Michael. My wife and I have a modest vinyl collection. Okay. So you've collected vinyl. Yeah. So so this is the difference between algorithm and land spirits. I think this is one way I'm really, and I think the scrying thing is similar because it's oracular. Like when you go to YouTube and you're like, what do I want to listen to today? And then there's the recommend links. People treat that as oracular, right? So algorithm. Orac using used Orac. So let's say you go to the local record store. That actually also has an algorithm how it's showing you information that you might not actually be paying attention. So the way the records appear and how they ended up there and how they're coming piercing out at you, which album covers or the taste of the record shop owner, or they have used records so that people from the neighborhood drop stuff off. Those are all algorithmic. That's all our algorithmic data. And I think one of the things I just want folks to consider is that like we may use the internet algorithmically, but the algorithms of land are still have a different characteristic. The amount of freedom and chance it introduces and local information, local record store has local information literally inside of it. Versus if you go to Spotify, does not have local information. And that's what I mean, like the spirits of the algorithmic metaversal world and the realms of earth are actually in conflict. This is exactly what we're talking about. And what we're experiencing right now, and I don't, I'm, this is not good nor, good nor bad in the end, but we're talking about vinyl. So vinyl is like, in terms of audio fidelity, like the top medium, top common medium, but you can get reel to reel to inch tape, but nobody has that, right? Other than like Kerry Chandler. So he DJs with that. But if you don't have reel to reel tape, you probably have vinyls like your most high fidelity setup or a huge, the largest range of 
sound. And then the next step over it would be CD. Let's take out cassette tapes because cassette tapes were, yeah, didn't quite you know fit the bill. But let's go from like vinyl to CD, right? And then after the CD generation, what did you have? You had MP3. And now you have streaming. So what's happened though is that streaming is considered the most advanced technology. It actually has the worst signal. So, so the most advanced technology actually has the worst signal. And I was I'm not being just like, talking oh. about this with my wife, but please go on. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like I'm not like trying to be like, oh, you kids, and I remember when everything was on records, and uh, whatever. But I'm saying that there's been a degradation of data that our nervous systems are getting towards and getting, and that's true in human intimacy. I love you, Michael, but we have also never met. You never smell my hair. I've never smelled your armpits. That's truth, right? Yeah. That's truth. Yeah. So me and me and you here are dealing with a degradation of data in our relationships, right? The pandemic was a huge deal that people are dealing with like degraded data and their relationships trying to rely on that degraded data to upkeep. So I think there's something really about the ability of the human senses to actually have experience. How and why is that being toned in the way we are? And that also in the reverse gives me hope for the future because vinyl hasn't gone away for a reason. So I don't think real life human relationships going to go. You know what I mean? I just, I'm not like an absolutist that way, but I think it's just like worth for us to see that, oh, the cyborgification is happening while you're worried about typing about it online, which is already a degraded communication platform. That's just, what is your nervous system getting used to? How is it? And notice that whatever medium that you're communicating through is toning your system. And I do think if you can see the spirit realm kind of conversation is that yeah you have what i call the realm of circles which the realm of circles is our world built out of tauruses right the material world that is built out of yin and yang tauruses that create a sphere so in japanese spirit is called tama or tama means ball so this world that we live in is made of balls i think the rosicrucians say this too, like in the ancient texts that they have or medieval texts i guess the world's made of spheres made of balls made of tauruses Right? And it's pretty elemental, like fuzzy new age quantum theory, whatever, right? The world is made of balls. And I think the world made of balls is fundamentally different from the world made of squares because the metaverse and is made of squares. So I don't know if people are catching on, but we're living in a world war of world of war of worlds between the world of balls and the world of cubes. <laughs> That's literally what's happening. <laughs> It's literally what's happening because our our system, our nervous system is getting used to being able to process data that's made out of squares, converted into the realm of balls, but still a lot closer to the realm of squares. And we're literally getting our systems used to that. And that is actually a lot of the conflict. It's literally a battle between shapes. That's, that's just like my straight up. That's how weird this shit is. It's literally... Team circle versus team square on the line. And that's, it's like literally, and like when you break it down to the most simple thing that's happening, it's that weird. So I think this has been, you've made yourself pretty clear on this point in this call so far, but I just want to invite you to reflect or explain. It strikes me that you're not on team circle or team square. Oh, <laughs> That it's that you're that what you're saying, like the challenge that faces us is to synthesize circle to to literally again. This is like the alchemical to square the circle, 
right? This was a thing that was impossible using the tools of the geometer. If you go to Michael S. Schneider's The Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe, which is like one of the coolest books I can possibly recommend. And it talks about like the way that that various numerical systems and geometrical systems throughout history used the compass and the straight edge and so on to understand the building blocks of reality. We can do it now with computers, but like for thousands of years, we're like, we don't know how to draw a square whose edges each touch the circumference of the circle. That was, and so that task was regarded as being one of these things that the the, the alchemists saw as so like while they were trying to convert lead into gold, they were also trying to arrive at this geometrical understanding that would allow for the reconciliation of these two different modes, and which can also be thought of as like the reconciliation of the like discrete mathematics and continuous mathematics where it's and and how do we when we think about or objects and processes there's there's a a way to chunk the world down like i was just talking about this with one of my family's friends at christmas dinner last night that there's like a physicists are frequently roasted for wanting to make descriptions of the world that are comically oversimplified in order to make the mathematics easier to handle. And so the joke is that physicists want a spherical cow. But of course, they want a spherical cow because the system is the system that you're talking about here is actually, even though it is a like calculus is a system where it's interesting, Stephen Strogatz gave a really interesting talk on calculus that I'll try to remember to link in the show notes for SFI earlier this year, talking about how calculus is the way that you use the finite to enter infinity, because you're trying to take a curve. And underneath that curve, you are creating an infinitely many segments in order to understand the area under the curve mathematically, right? Yeah, the asymptote. Right. So, yeah, and yeah. yeah so there's this, yeah, yeah so there's this way mm-hmm. of all of these mm-hmm. different systems. Mm-hmm. And at any rate, mathematicians in the circles that, <laughs> that I inhabit tend not to be, at this point in the 21st century, at least tend not to be unilaterally, ideologically pushing toward one or other of those approaches. They tend to be to recognize that there are certain kinds of questions for which you want to use discrete mathematics as a tool and others for which you want to use a continuous mathematics as a tool and that neither of these are really these are like methodological rather than ontological they're not these are not statements about reality it's not that ultimately the world is made out of bits or even the people who like Seth Lloyd who do say this who say you can use the universe to compute things and that that like information theory requires breaking things down into bits but where do the bits come from you go to Nora Bateson and these and like Greg Bateson her father and the bit is a distinction that is being like the information is in Batesonian language the difference that makes a difference because it is the way that our own brains are doing what mathematicians are doing in calculus which is chunking up the the continuous experience our own relatedness with the universe and then parceling it in order to make it easier for us to navigate. So it's not with a bit in the in Vidur Mishra and his book, The Infoboris, that my, my friend Rich Doyle published on Metanoia Press. There's a you cannot actually 
even though most people do, you cannot actually talk about information theory without also talking about cognitive neuroscience because information doesn't exist without being beheld in some way. So anyway, I don't know. I just have to drop that in there. But really yeah, what yeah, I yeah. really what I want to talk with you about or hear you talk about is how you are working to synthesize this stuff or reconcile it. Because sometimes I feel like I'm on, yeah, like I'm kind of ambivalent. And I think a lot of my friends are like, I'm. some days I feel like I'm on Team Circle. Some days I feel like I'm on Team Square. My own egregore that I've talked about on the show, the one that joined me and my wife in a sort of esoteric union back in 2007, appeared to me in the form of those, the way that the Sentinels and Matrix Revolutions the robotic squid. But then when Neo goes blind and he sees them with his third eye and he sees their subtle bodies and they're like these divine beings that are... And so that's what I saw. It was like this like cybernetic tentacled thing that then later had this weird but like perfect rhyme with the Ishtadevas of Hinduism that are like these many armed things living under at the center of the earth and so, okay, so, okay, if I'm going to just go with that and the fact that I had it was a glass explorer, have a digital lens now and all this stuff, then basically I deserve all of the shit that I've caught from people on Team Circle for being a servant of the machine or the machinic. But on the oh, other... Yeah, you get a lot of that. You're a servant of Team Square. Yeah. But, but at the same time, Team yeah. Square people, like... Among scientists, I'm a complete lunatic, new age hippie weirdo. Oh, yeah. Like I'm loose in the head. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, to your point earlier that you made about like just being attacked from both sides. Anyway, that's end rant. <laughs> that seems to prove we're good spaces. You know what I think? What really comes to me? So we're like a few hours, almost a few hours in chatting is like, so something feels like it's starting to distill to me is I've had a sense that like, Obviously, the singularity is coming and it's tearing through our brains. So in the, with the singularity, I guess the most simple description, you can't tell the difference between a man-made whatever and an alive thing. You can't tell if it's on Team Circle or on Team Square. That's the singularity. Earth and Metaverse, you don't know which is either or it doesn't matter. So distinction is something that's being challenged. And I think this isn't just about the singularity, but I think there's something coming around the distinction between living and non-living disappearing, this distinction between individual and collective disappearing. And I think one of the big ones is the distinction between good and evil disappearing. So I have I feel that to survive the era that's coming, you can't really have these understandings of this good and evil that have been weight-based and kind of a certain kind of polarized bi like binary. And the era of singularity is also challenged to that in and of itself. So there's something I think we all realize we're headed towards as a kind of coalescing of things. But all the fragments are being brought in and that's kind of what our minds are being like shoved through is like computing all that integration. But uh, yeah, there's something about the singularity not being able to distinguish between team circle or team square. Fundamentally requires you to challenge and take away that idea that there is like this, yeah, good and evil. And I do think there is like love that exists that's not either. There is a, there is love that exists that is not either. I don't know how to describe that, but this is kind of like where 
when I'm talking about Japanese animism or the imprints of this, what is like an imprint of this old non-dual way of being in the world. That's really what it is. And a lot of it involves ritual, involves certain kinds of ways of seeing. I think that's really what's coming down the pipe. That's really what's the challenge and that we're faced with. And I think the singularity is actually philosophically a deep part of that. So it's all coming together. I really do think so. And of course, I think that's why like we're faced with a kind of like sphere of it's amazing that we're all like going oh maybe we can boot up our souls to the internet live forever at the same time that we're like maybe the planet's going to collapse right there is there's something there happening of course you have to die to do that and like what you get and this is something i want to talk about with nora the next time i have her on the show which should be soon because she has this whole like a fanapoiesis thing which is that all of the systems that we can observe and model are just like the tip of this iceberg of stuff that we can't ever really understand or model. And yet that stuff is like the transcontextual stuff, crucial. It's essential and, and intrinsic and we can't get rid of it and we don't want to get rid of it. But then there's that's lost on both economic models and on this notion that you can like scan a person into a computer. And so to your point about the MP3 is like, this is the point I've been trying to make to Jason Silva for over a decade which is, do you really want to be the MP3 version of yourself or do you want to be the vinyl version of yourself? Great question. You like, the trade-offs to both, right? Vinyl is a pain in the ass. Like MP3, it's like in the cloud and you can listen to it anywhere. But at the same time, as a parent, this is the argument that I've been having with my wife recently. And I'm sorry that I, it's, I don't know, it's so frustrating because like our kids love music and music calms them. And we this debate or like this war that we're experiencing now between these two modes or as they appear as two different modes before we fully dissolve them into non-duality is showing up in the battlefield of bedtime for my family mm-hmm. right now because because oh, yeah. they there's like a playlist of sleepy songs that my wife uses to, that she needs that help her get our kids to sleep but like, i remember being skeptical of that whole thing when we started because i was like this is just a, these are prosthetic lullabies. Like really what the kids are going to want is to hear their mother sing to them. And yet now they're attuned to this thing. But at the same time, like the point that you made is that living in the electrical grid, 50 Hertz or 60 Hertz, wherever you happen to be listening to 320 kilobyte per second audio, listening to audio with like a mechanically regulated tempo like all of this stuff has been found to actually stimulate the brain to get it like stuck in these kinds of these patterns. So like you're actually inducing that at the same time that the kid is comforted by listening to a beautiful chorus sing Dear Moon or the Slumber My Darling or whatever, they are also on another level stimulated into beta wave entrainment or it's activating the sympathetic nervous system at the same time that it's activating. So it's like, I'm like, we're shooting ourselves in the foot here by relying on these tools to get the kids to sleep. I know it's easier, but it does feel like a deal with the devil because I can already tell that the more that we try to like relax our kids, for instance, by putting them in front of a television, the measurably worse 
they're going to behave for the rest of the day afterwards because they're overstimulated. I'm like definitely not commenting too much on this. Yeah. <laughs> they're not no. getting between me. But it's, <laughs> we're not just losing my ability, to, like your ability to smell my armpits here. We're additionally dealing with the, the habituation of the human body to these intensely overstimulating virtual environments. And yeah, that's exactly it. So like that's exactly Avatar 2. Like I got out of Avatar 2 and you can say about the plot or the production, the execution of that film. I was like, man, it's been a while since I've been in a theater. I had forgotten somehow as a kid, I had become habituated to the experience of cinema and I walked out feeling elated simply by exposing myself to a media product that was as sensorily overwhelming as that film. And I think that's actually what a lot of people can like critique that movie for its indigenous representation or it's, it's, it's conflicted. Like we're supposedly, you know, we're supposedly, it's an anti-violent, it's a violent, anti-violent movie. And that's what the hell is that? But I think it, like all of that debate is actually nitro fueled by the fact that people are walking out of this film, like jittering from overstimulation. And right. so anyway, that's a, yeah. no, but this is, this comes back to, again. I'm like team circle, team square. I don't, I can't pick sides. It's we're talking about, Oh, it might be, it's also interesting for people to realize like the sign of the Freemasons is the compass of the square. So what I'm talking is, Pretty fucking built into the fabric of the world. Not and also there's a I might put it in the show's notes, but there's a Chinese kind of myth which involves a serpent couple, a couple of serpent humanoids, Fusi and Nuwal, that are holding a compass in the square. That's ancient Chinese stuff, thousands of years old. So this stuff is really ingrained. But anyways, yeah, like. It's about, this comes back to the questions about AI art and all that stuff too, is can, sure, like, they're both like a vinyl version of a song and then like an MP3 or streaming version of the song are the same song, but do they carry the same chi? And how it's shaped energetically, is it more circle or is it more square? How does it move our synchronous, acausal information fields? How does it actually move? Because that's actually the question. I think that's what it comes back down to. Like, how is the that piece moving our reality a causally, a causal? I think that in that does have to do with like how it's toning us. Like, I do think this is what I was really depressed about last year or a year ago. Actually, is just looking at everyone and going, looking at my own life and just noticing that oh, we're all so getting used to this degraded signal. We're all getting accustomed to this degraded signal. We go on our feeds, we talk through Messenger, we do that, Michael and I, but like we all do these things and it's a degraded version that we know our body doesn't, is a little bit out of sync with how our body is used to being. And why are we being, what are we being conditioned towards? by being conditioned to accept these degraded signals. And when I saw the metaverse staring down the pipe, I was just like, that makes a lot of sense. Because to exist in a metaverse satisfactorily, you need to be able to tolerate a degraded signal. And that includes like even an intimate partner. Maybe you would never meet them in real life. Like you, and that being okay, because you're okay with the degraded signal. 
like your whole experience would be contained with an integrated signal. You can't tell the difference. Did you ever see Blade so, Runner 2049? That no, film is no, all about that. Yeah. I, I highly recommend you take some time to watch that film because I feel like that fil- that one, and then if you haven't watched Westworld, the TV okay, show. Yeah. Westworld. Oh, man. Wow. Let's loop back around and revisit this topic after you've seen those two. Westworld's a real commitment. It's 40 hours of TV or whatever. So I'm sorry. I'm strapping you into the chair. But it is, there is, both of those films are playing around with this kind of Pinocchio type question about, about like where does living and dead and machine and life and all of this stuff, what happens as these things become increasingly co-imbricated or confused or in, how do we move past seeing those things in strict binaries, et cetera? Yeah. So one of the things I would say, and this maybe kind of starts closing up our call because it, it actually molds things together. But I think essentially right now what's happening is whenever we type stuff on the internet, this is why I've actually haven't been on my socials for the last year really that much. If you, I don't know if folks know this, folks care, but I'm just not as much and been actually pared down. My social media is like when we type stuff or we spend emotional energy on these, a lot of the platforms, that's our chi being sucked up somewhere. Or if you actually pay attention to your energy, actual energy body while it's happening, you'll notice that something's leaving your body. And so straight up, like, I think what the kind of practice that I'm interested in is why talking about how, how does AI art move chi is it's simply, I think, true for us that being able to reground the internet into our local ecosystems and the actual Earth's ecosystem, like I'm talking pretty literally here in a way, like being able to reground the energy so it doesn't, our emotional energy is not escaping into this like metaverse. I think is a big part of the task at hand. I don't, and I, I can't say every all the, I can't share all the data of exactly how that this is gonna ha- how this is gonna happen. But I think it will have its own cyborgian kind of element. I think that process. I'm looking at it, but I think that's like the big interesting magic that's coming up is the mediation between realms, and then how to allow these ecosystems that which the algorithms, the algorithms of the land, and the algorithms of online are all how can they talk to each other because right now by by far and large they're not talking to each other like the way social media itself is constructed is extremely detrimental to our real life human relationships so i don't i think we can we just have to just be really honest about that but there's a lot of potential when we start realizing that's happening and then how do we create an alchemy how do we alchemize it so that these realms can talk to each other in a way that's good for our systems too, as we become cyborgs ourselves more and more. So I think there's like a new kind of spirituality that's evolving. I think a lot of people have talked about it. I think the metamodern folks have talked about as open source religion. Like, I agree with that. What is it like for us to share the esoteric codes of the world and have a common blueprint for reality that is relatively truthful? And how does that function in both URL and IRL worlds? I think that's, there's an, evolution revolution of spiritual systems itself that's starting to come that's facing down us so i think that's the major thing i'm interested in and i think my kind of funny plot is that i think the the return of these wisdom traditions of ancient lost civilizations is going to be a big part that's Mm. like the spinoff 
And it's going to be about aliens. Yes. It's going to be about interdimensional beings. It's going to be about all kinds of wacky shit that we didn't think was real, probably, is my guess. A lot of this stuff comes for me through, yeah, with a, my work with a collaborator called, I'll pop in their name, but Rain Malo. So we're right now working towards this project called Lumu, which means Dragon's Dream. And uh, essentially what I've been exploring or what I've been passed down as a piece of information, I think, is that our whole reality is a dragon's dream. If you really want to know the face of God, that's who they are. And that's actually the big kind of operation. That's been, and if you look at Gnosticism, that's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, but totally. It's a, it's a dragon. So the world is created from a dragon. And our whole reality is a dragon. Each one of us is a dragon. Like our spine is literally a dragon, if you actually look. Algorithms are a dragon. The shape of algorithms moving through time and space is a dragon moving through yin and yang in the Chinese five elements, like causally or a causally, depending on which way you're going. But so we, that's kind of like how I understand the present moment, I think. So yeah, I'm launching some projects and doing a lot of thinking around it. But I think that's, yeah, the wisdom of a lot of the lost civilizations is that's the foundation. And What's been hidden is the true face of God in the sense of people have been given the face of the white guy. You know, there's Nordic aliens and all that, but I'm still like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> if you look at biblical references, I've read them. I've watched videos on this. Yahweh sounds like a dragon. Like every like, description of Yahweh. Wait, I think Yahweh is like a dragon. It's really interesting. And then we get into a whole cosmology of how dragons break down into, there's the dragon serpents and then there's the dragon cows. <laughs> The horned, the horned beasts and then like the serpents and how they get along. But it's all this psychedelic mass hole. I think that's kind of what we're in, <laughs> basically. So um, what, I do, what I think, yeah, this, I think this world is a simulation, which is a dream of a dragon. And we're all little pieces of that dream, kind of dreaming each other along. And that's basically it. Where does the, and, this is the five-year-old question. It's the Sunday school question, right? Which is, where, what's the dragon living in? What's the dragon's world? That's this dragon's world. That's it. I have not looked in. I barely. <laughs> looked. I guess according to the Gnosticism, it's some other. You know what I mean? I have, yeah, the, my brain breaks there. I guess. Yeah, understandably. I don't. There. Yeah. Again, there are just some things that maybe we just can't know. Like your dog can't know math. Yeah. Or whatever. But I'm just saying. I think the idea of the world being the dream of a dragon just feels like it, for me at least resolves everything. It resolves even like the whole reptilian alien thing. I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, the nightmare of the dragon is going to express itself some way. That makes a lot of sense. We're back um, to David Icke now. You know what the trippiest thing? So this, the, after I watched the David Icke stuff, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, my head's real scrambled. Mm. I was way too high while I was watching that. <laughs> I went on to do some, this is why we got down the rabbit hole. I started reading some Japanese conspirituality. Oh, yeah. And they're pro-lizard. Those are dragons. So I was like, what the hell is that? So like the Japanese are like, we love, like the reptilians are cool. Or and they're simplifying, but they're like, kind of like the reptilians. Yeah, yeah. People say a lot of shit about them. But that's not who they are. What's going on here? And I think from there, I synthesized a bit that like, your worldview matters. Because the aliens, extraterrestrials, or whatever, exist psychedelically. So how you see them creates who they are. And a lot of actually what people call land spirits are essentially aliens that have been 
aliens that have been channeled and infused with Lance character. So if you're seeing aliens and experiencing them, but you are rooted in your land, your relationship to them becomes ecosystemic. Oh, that is for sure. I don't know if we've ever talked about this and I don't want to keep you forever. I've I got, I've got an unusually free day to just go on and on. But like, but like, this is precisely what I came to through my own series of quote unquote UFO encounters in 2006 and seven, where again, like this, I feel like my seeing them in retrospect has everything to do with First of all, like it was correlated with this was the year after I had gone through this whole detective story around living in a poltergeist house and then realizing that the poltergeist is associated with emotionally disrupted teenagers and young adults and that it took me a while, but I finally kind of settled on the hypothesis that this thing that was slamming doors in our house and shaking my friend's bed in the attic 2 a.m. and breaking the windows of my car and eventually smashed the front door of our house in. And it was like this pattern of activity that if I was like, okay, do I have an enemy I don't know about or whatever? But I came to this, it can't be that because this some of this stuff was happening while I was like alone in the house. And then I started researching European folk literature and was like, oh, there's this whole thing about brownies and elves that is this basically isomorphic to the literature on poltergeists in other cultural narratives. And the brownies are your like companions that if you're on the right track, they help you. They like they make your the shoemaker's shoes for him while he's asleep if he's on the right thing. But if they if you are like lost in the woods of, of your life, then they like prank you until you get your shit together. And at that time I was like, like I didn't know what I was doing with myself. My whole life had fallen apart as far as like, I was on a clear rail until, until I was 21 and then everything stopped making sense. And so that's when this poltergeist activity picked up. And then the next year, and so once I had internalized that, like once I had integrated this like ghost as like a splinter of my own psyche that was wreaking havoc in my environment for as long as I was othering it, then I started like about uh, almost exactly a year later, I had these UFO encounters with my friends. And then those UFO encounters, like the first thing that happened was like a test to see if I could understand precisely what you're talking about is like the a causality here of these beings. Like it wasn't like an ontological exam. Do you understand that this thing is not simply within you or outside of you? Do Can you understand? Like it was in front of the tree and behind the tree at the same time. And so it's okay. Clearly this is not just a physical object in space. So, and then they were all in this marshy, like all of these encounters happened in this marshy lakeside area west of Lawrence, Kansas. I'm I'm finally wrapping up the studio version of the song that I wrote about these encounters. And I'll hopefully have it published by the time this episode goes live. But at any rate, the quote unquote aliens or whatever, I started looking more into fairy literature. And so, yeah, I didn't even know about Jacques Vallée or Graham Hancock's writing on this. His book on this stuff hadn't even come out yet at the time. But like this long seam connecting the quote unquote aliens with Faye. One of the things about those experiences, the second one of four, was that they were also associated not with just obviously craft things in the sky, but will of the wisp, like in the swampy part itself. 
And so there's the floating orbs that appear in swampy areas that are like in, in Celtic mythos. They're like leading lost journeymen like deeper into the swamp to their death. This shows up in Lord of the Rings where they're like the spirits of the dead that like they almost fall into the swamp of the souls or whatever. And so, yeah, one of the things that I felt like I got communicated to me by those beings of various kinds and those experiences where they're like, listen, you can say that we're from another world, but to the degree that is in any way literally true, our like history of engagement with the biosphere of this planet predates the biosphere or is like at least like continuous with it. So if like those of us that came here from another planet, from other planets, from other systems came here because we knew that there was going to be life on this planet. And so we've been here the entire time. Whereas some of you people who think that you're like native to this place have only recently arrived as reincarnated from other star systems and are basically new arrivals. And so in a way, these aliens that you're encountering here are actually indigenous and you're the foreigner. And that's interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so, so it's, yeah, there was a sort of like panspermia component where like beings converged on this planet, like the fucking angels at the birth of Christ. They were just like, okay, cool. Oh, it's happening down there. Let's go check it out. But then they've been here the whole time hiding in the backdrop and like participating in the evolution of this entire invisible ecology of subtle energy realm beings that is just behind the curtain of what the only biosphere that most modern people recognize, which is the gross physical material biosphere. But then there's this whole like chi biosphere behind that one. And that's where they hang out because they just don't want to, they just don't want to be fucked with. They don't want to, and they don't want to fuck with us. Not all of them, but like the ones that I was talking to were like, we kind of prefer to just hide most of the time and limit the like prime directive Star Trek limit the surface area of our engagement with the gross realm evolutionary history. Yeah, yeah. so the, the interesting. So my collaborator Rain is a lot more hip to this stuff, but yeah, I'm pretty much. I'm like, yeah, I think everything you're saying feels about right to me, and yeah, I think right now a lot of that I have never seen an alien. I've never seen a UFO yet, but I'm pretty much okay. Fair enough. You are one. Yeah, I am one. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But I think the thing is, it's it seems to me like, yeah, or we're maybe in a time where that hasn't happened for a while. But certain in, certain information fields, people are seeing that shit all the time, and they exist together. That's what I mean. The world's made up of information fields. Certain people's information fields are assaulted with that data, and it's a causal actually in nature, right? It's actually a causal in nature how that. How people, some people see things and how some people don't. It's actually, we live on the same planet, but we actually don't. Because information divides us, actually. What information synchronous fields that we're hooked into, you'll see or not see things. But I do think the world's being driven towards a world that can see those things. And I do think, I was reading some stuff, but I don't know, maybe it's too out there, but like Tom Maltot. Anyway, so like he was basically saying, we might a lot of, was he saying that? I'm not sure. Maybe I just dropped it in the reference. But probably part of a group of people you're not supposed to read if you're, but it's just that like the world is maybe going to be exposed more to that reality. 
And that's part of our challenge is if you're not ready for that reality, and this is kind of what my collaborator Rain says, is that it's going to blow your mind. And you're not going to survive because it blew up. Reality that's being shown to you is going to blow your head off. And so, but I do think one of the interesting things is like what I got is like the, like the mantis alien, right? A lot of the time in alien lore, they're seen as negative. And, uh, but my sense of them, like when they're infused with the ecosystem, they're a lot more about designing the ecosystem through relationships. So that's something that I got. So a lot of the, a lot of the ways people even see, I think aliens are like, yeah, like what you mentioned, like when you're off track, the brownies like kick you in the ass, right? Is that a lot of the Japanese animism, what we call it, the worshiping style is like taking the punishment as a blessing. Yeah, That's a non-dual thing. This is a very non-dual thing is to be able to be like, Thank you, dear. Thank you for bringing me the blessing of having my ass kicked when I was on the wrong path. And of course, that means that if you are straying away from the overall ecosystem's needs, you get your ass kicked. And you're like, oh, this is the blessing that protects the village. But when you see that, then what happens is that experiences that are convenient to you and inconvenient to you are both read as a kind of loving gesture within the cosmos. And that's kind of like the essence of Japanese animism, non-dual. There's no right, there's no good and evil because the spirits themselves, if you're able to take that view, then the nature of the beings they interact with change. And I think this is the difference between, this is the main essential difference, I think, between like the Western world that has a polarity of good and evil and they like animist or like Japanese view, Asian view that good and evil doesn't really exist. That is essentially the pin, like depending on how you orient towards the world, because it's completely psychedelic, especially in the spirit realm, it actually changes the nature of the spirit realm. And that actually creates a secure energy field and secure synchronous field. So I think in a nutshell, that's kind of like the work that I'm really interested in doing now is like, how do we, when more and more people are in the same view, it creates a larger acausal field that other people can network into. That's how the Japanese shrine system works. Mm. You have these acausal information fields that are based in land, intended to all the time, that are networked into each other. So essentially, it's like you have spiritual grounding and earthing as a kind of public utility. That's kind of how Japan says. I like it. So, so I yeah. guess maybe the last question I have for you, because this is you w- walked us right over the Beringian land bridge <laughs> to Japan and and sea level is low enough that we can see those at least uh, one of the more interesting things that did not come up on ancient apocalypse that I was like why the hell didn't this why didn't they talk about this on the doc series was the Hancock's proposal that just off the shore of Japan are all of the, these temple structures that were like bare. Oh I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. Oh cool. so it's that's something that he's talked about before in presentations of this material that like a lot one and he talked about it a little bit but not about specifically offshore of japan but like that this when the sea levels rose when the sea levels rose 400 feet at after the north american glacier shield was melted or whatever that the reason that it's not that most of it's not that we were as some of the archaeologists who have critiqued his material have said that what he's actually suggesting is that there's no evidence for these things that it's like where where is it's now actually what he's saying is that like he's found a bunch of it including spots in indonesia where the offshore stuff that's underwater and only visible to scuba divers is actually there's ramps there's like stairways coming out of the ocean still 
that are like the top of the temple structure is still out of the water. But anyway, off of, and I don't know, I'm not, again, I'm not qualified to, but like I've seen footage from these scuba missions off the coast of Japan where it looks like pretty obviously, like there are Gobekli Tepe type things off the, the yep. shore there. Anyway, that's, I don't know why I even bothered to bring that up, except that maybe, maybe you can find some information about it and form your own opinion. But the, so let's say, can you, can you yeah. clarify that? Did, I haven't watched the whole series yet. Oh, it's not in that. He doesn't talk about it in the, in the, that's not the weird thing about that show is it's actually like, it's like the absolute worst way to present such a controversial topic to everybody. Because first of all, I've seen lectures by Graham Hancock that were like a two hour talks that went into far more effective and rigorous argument for the same thing. Maybe that's just the vibe. And he's talking about ancient Japanese offshore stuff. Right. And like this, but the show is just as far as if you're trying to convince anybody, then like basically they completely messed it up because they just spent the whole show like foregrounding the fact that he's got this chip on his shoulder and wants to joust the entire archaeological community and then spends (laughs) the other half of the time giving like the lowest fidelity inadequate argument for these very very difficult points that he's trying to make about his own like understanding and research that he's synthesized about all this stuff and like what some of the stuff that he's that should be in there is completely absent like the stuff that he and this is not at all to do with the question i was going to ask you but just to be clear one of the things that really started to convince me that he had something worth saying or was making a case that deserved more community engagement and deeper rigorous scrutiny was the stuff about the sphinx in egypt and how like the sphinx has evidence on of it of like the flood has like a has like erosion of the on the sphinx like there's water, there's, there are like flood lines where this, and so, and also that the Sphinx was oriented toward the location of the constellation Leo 12,000 years ago, which makes a whole lot more sense as far as like actually dating that structure, that it was, it was a, a structure made in the course of worshiping a Leonine entity. And so why would it be, I forget where they, I forget the constellation it was supposedly pointing to during at, during the, the whatever it was the the handful of thousands of years ago that it most people believe it to have been constructed but like, it makes way more sense if it was pointing at Leo than it does that it was pointing at whatever Aquarius or a fuck so at any rate the not at all the point what I wanted to ask you <laughs> a lot of the point actually oh I mean I'm sure it's interesting to you and I hope that helps your sort of exploration but like one of the obviously i don't remember if we did this when i had you on the first time but like often when i end this show i end it with a prompt to reflect on our role as ancestors right and the this sort of transtemporal contemplation of what it means to be engaging directly and presently with those beings that we consider currently to be unborn like that they're in the room with us right now and and even if you don't literally believe that like just entertain me with the thought experiment that you can there is a sort of bi-directional communication going on there and what would that be like and what would you say or what would you want to hear or how would you how would you relate 
Like, how do you relate to the future that's in the room with us right now? Not just our own ancestors that are sitting, looking over our shoulders and lighting the way forward. But what what are we getting from and because that was a big piece of when Terrence McKenna talked about what are the entities that we're encountering in DMT space? What are the self-dribbling basketball transforming machine elves? Is that maybe they're the souls of the dead. But like the dead doesn't necessarily just mean those that have already lived. It means those yet to live. And so you're talking about our role in the sort of formation of a-causal attractors in this like hyperdimensional space of the dragon dream. <laughs> then yeah so like riff if you would please in closing just on your like this is a martial art as far as i'm concerned thinking this way and living this way becomes not just a theory but a practice it becomes a praxis and your stance relative to the future therefore subtly co-determines the nature of that future even as it subtly co-determines us. That's one of the things I'm taking away from what you're saying and linking to the way that I already were in, engaged with these ideas and lived experiences. So, yeah. So what is yeah, what is your your form if this is a martial art? Like what is the form that you're taking with relationship to this, to the f- the future people, and not, of course, just people, because that's one of the things that's breaking down is that human non human divide. Sure, but like yeah. the beings of the future that are like watching us right now, like post singularity intelligences that are reaching basilisk like back through time. Post singularity intelligence. Yeah, that are like okay, yeah. you like, and this is a reason to watch Westworld too, because they like you get into this whole thing of like, where am I in time? Where am I actually in time? Like my buddy Norman Katz in Albuquerque is what if you're actually just reliving the life that's already like that you're actually just like your whole what you think is your whole life is actually your past life. You're already like way the fuck in a simulation and like deep in the future and you don't realize it. So anyway, that's my yeah, yeah. dragon hydra right. of a question for you. <laughs> All right. Let's just, I think I can start off with a little bit of I think I'm starting to more and more understand that. There's a big possibility, seems to be a pretty solid one, that Japan has one of the most ancient cultures of the world, actually. One of the most ancient civilizations of the world actually happened in Japan, or the land that is now called Japan now. And it takes after the floods, or the great flood, the mythos. It's a part of our of our inheritance. It's interesting, Graham Hancock mentioned Japan. I was like, kind of like, it's going to go there, but I'm also like, information fields are their thing. But there is like, literally a shrine called, it's called Heitate Jingu. Very strange shrine. It has like, it says, the shrine is says this officially has been in operation for 15,000 years now. That's like their line. So it's the oldest shrine in Japan, quote unquote, 15,000 years old. The site is at least. And the site has like, ancient stone carvings that are in a language that nobody knows. (laughs) So Japan actually has a lot of places like that, like offshore temple shrines immersed in the sea, like Petrograph's ancient scripts. It's actually really interesting how people don't think that exists there, but it actually does. And it kind of exists kind of in a chill way. So this shrine carries a legend that the five colored people, which are the Colors of the Chinese five elements, black, white, blue, red, yellow, all dispersed from there into the world after a great flood. And this actually appears in the Takenouchi documents, as named. Um, 
there's a little bit of fuzziness here because some of the shrines in Japan are not actually about Japan itself. It's they're actually carry lore from Sumeria and ancient Mesopotamia, and they transplant and geographically to a new information field. But it actually the story didn't actually happen there. The story was actually origins actually happened in ancient Sumeria. So there's a lot of this kind of weirdness in Japan, but this shrine actually exists in I think every five years or seven years, they do like a festival called the Five Colored People Festival where they gather people of all different colors of the world and they gather and there's these masks of the five color races that they put on and do a dance and stuff. <laughs> so this place like literally exists. So that's one color. So the, all right, back in again. So yeah, the, that's my inheritance. And then learning my family is a kind of shamanic lineage that at the minimum comes through ancient India. Like a family scroll basically that was shown to me said, our ancestral deity came through, was a prince of the ancient kingdom of Magadha in India, which was an Alexandrian kingdom of ancient India. I'm like, okay. And that's like over 2,000 years ago. And then there's some more. Just inheriting all those things, I think. Yeah, no, the wild thing that I think of is that just even like how I would like to, yeah, my... I can see with the way the world, around the world is going to start shaping the IRL world. We're already seeing it, but just even like, how long are those borders going to hold up when the world online doesn't have any or doesn't have a lot? Or is the world, the, you, is the URL world going to reshape the IRL world literally and change people's really relationships and belonging based on that? And, and to be honest, I kind of see that coming. Of it. People are already like like conservatives or whatever, or like people who are in militias that are gathering together, right? Stocking of food and gathering this sort of region. Like stuff like that's already happening. Essentially, that's what it is. People gather online and then they gather locally, centralizing into certain spaces and stuff, yeah. and that's going to happen. Have you been to Burning Man? No, I haven't yet. Dude, my thesis about Burning Man is that it is just the physicalization of the internet. Yeah, like every camp is a website where people from all over the world come together based on affinity groups. Yeah. And then you, the way that you move through Burning Man is almost like you're just like you, you get on an art car and you just zip around and it's like you're just traveling through the tubes of the internet. But go on, sorry. Yeah, yeah it's perfectly exactly. And I think one of the things I think about is I think we're all a part of this, right? I think we're looking at with the metaverse, we're just staring at the creation of new countries, really. And what are the I think it's going to be really interesting to, are you going to have like online countries where every citizen is basically aware they're actually part of a collective unconscious? That's a really interesting setup. That country can be created. Like in my case, if everybody in this country, mine, agrees that we're living in a dragon's dream, that's a really interesting setup for a country or a culture, however you want to define it. And so... I think that kind of thing is going to become really interesting where it's like the Wachowski sisters, like Sense8, right? Everybody's seen that. Where if we're actually being really honest with ourselves, how intertwined our collective psyches are, it's only natural online for there to develop entities that are essentially a conglomerate of different souls that who agree that their psyches are interconnected and fortify. I think that's happening already. But that's happening unaware with people because essentially the way it's happening right now is if you're a social justice warrior camp, you're part of this X camp, like people are not actually aware of their own affiliations and why. But actually, I think we become aware. We 
things can switch. You can shift things in subtle ways and then you're like, oh, I'm going to join this country and I'm going to join this collective unconscious. I'm going to join this ACOG information field I subscribe. And that's going to become its own nation. So I think what, something about dreaming at the, about the metaverse, about how all this is going to happen is really fascinating for me right now. And I think one of my like loose ambitions inside of that is probably how to bring up back kind of my priesthood lineage. So the lineage that I carry, that I'm the heir of, in a sense, like as a Hazumi, but like the only shrine left under my family's care is there's just one shrine left. There's other parts of our family, but under the name Hazumi. And it's a really, it's called Neno Shrine. And it's the most bizarre shrine, like I said. The legends are about like UFOs landing and all this stuff. Like the person who was like overseeing the opening of the shrine site was said to have been imprisoned in the years of 699 to 701, right? But in the shrine official statement, they said in 700, this person came to this site to open the shrine site. So it's kind of like they were supposed to have been in prison. So basically they flew is what they're implying. They got into some kind of Merkabah slash UFO and flew to this site across the ocean or across the sea, across the bay to open up the site. That's literally part of the fable, the shrine. And the shrine is like, really intense it has legends associated with it of an underwater castle underwater dragon castle where you get to by riding a big turtle <laughs> so it's sign me up yeah this is like literally that like you know alien ufo as deity stuff right <laughs> like literally happening the shrine site, and it's a forgotten shrine but it has been around for 1300 um, and it is probably one of it's probably the, one of the most un, probably unrecognized esoteric sites in Japan because it's so strange. And my family member, the master Ten, Ozumi Tenyu, is the last official yin-yang priest in all of Japan that holds a shrine. So the yin-yang bureau, which was the, the Japanese government's official kind of magical bureau until about, I think, 19 or 1890, it was functioning until more is disbanded through westernization and then subsequently through loss in World War II, there's been an assault on like people who practice Indian magic. It's part, it used to be part of the government. So he is the last person in all of Japan, as I know, it is like out as a yin-yang master and also is the custodian of a shrine, if I'm not wrong, or a hereditary custodian of a shrine. So it's actually, most shrines have not been in one family for the whole time at this point, but this one is. It's been all under Hozumi for 1,300 years. So when I think about that, I think about, I think my simple like thoughts are like, I love to leave something like that for my descendant, <laughs> which is a bit crazy, but it's actually, when I think of my work, I definitely think of in terms of what is it doing a thousand years from now? And I thought that was, I didn't really understand that was actually part of my family's thinking because literally our family is still doing things that our ancestors were like, hey, can you pass on this secret for a thousand years? You're like, okay, sure. That's literally how a lot of these families operate. Like you go into ceremonies and like between generations, what they do is get the, all the subsequent earlier hairs like to possess the newest hair. They do a ceremony where they take all the old spirits and then embody them into the new hair so they have the knowledge and they keep doing it. So it's kind of like, they're really like, they're like really like designer epigenetics for like thousands of years. 
And that's kind of like this unspoken, yeah, secret of these Asian lineages. And that's why we're so into family and shit. <laughs> Not in the sky. But it's, this is a big part. And it's the same in the West, right? It's the same. But I think there's a character in Asia that, that retains a lot of that kind of charge around what family and tradition is and all that. So I think I have a lot of it in me that wants to see something, yeah, live thousands of years from now that is like a priesthood or a knowledge system. Something. That's kind of what I think about daily. Yeah. But it's probably going to happen through the metaverse. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. An online, yeah, a new priesthood of a new religion is most of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Was just, I, you got to go back and listen to Neil Gaiman or Gaiman's the first talk that was ever given at the Long Now Foundation was about how to start a religion because a religion is the best way to communicate information through deep time was his point was is like like if you're trying to get people to stay away from a volcano like language itself evolves too fast so like you may end up but for the same reasons that Paul Smaldino talks about like the things that you say today could come to being in another hundred years, the precise opposite of what you intend for them to mean right now, or they could just drift entirely off into some weird direction. So the only way that you can really guarantee that you can influence the behavior of people, say his example was you want to keep people away from a volcano, right? And this is where the whole lost civilization thing gets really curious and interesting to me because it's like these people felt that something had happened, something horrible all over the world had happened that we were being warned about. And like all of the different strategies for encoding these things in mythology. And now the joke is on us, right? And them, because like we've drifted so far epistemologically that we no longer regard, most people in the modern world no longer see myth as having any kind of like, it's just, oh, it's just a baby story. Or whatever. Right. Yeah, we can just safely ignore. Yeah, not, we can not just safely so. ignore everyone warning us about the great floods, like <laughs> the comets and the. And it's, oh no, it was sculpted in a very intentional, deliberate way to keep us from. Whoops. So yeah, and and then also the other thing about Long Now is that they've done this worldwide analysis or like investigation of the longest surviving businesses and institutions and organizations, and like the oldest hotel in the world, the oldest restaurant in the world, the oldest blah, blah, blah. Like half of the oldest companies in the world are in Japan. Oh, yeah. So yeah, like, that's what I would have yeah. So like props to the Japanese for the Japanese, yeah. no, being literally. able to think on the thousand year time scale. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Yeah, no, it's like the oldest. There is a company that still exists that is in charge of fixing shrines. And I think that company... Some shrines are really like, there's a lot of secrets, right? So you can't have that shit get out. So it's like that. It's been around for years, like the company itself, because it's basically a secret society <laughs> that builds, that repairs shrines. So you can't have other people build it. So it's just literally been in operation for 1400 years. Literally a secret society, probably intergenerational heritage. They don't have no idea what's going on. It'd be like that. Yeah, that's kind of funny. even was it when da Jason Kotke posted this list of unlikely simultaneous historical events, and it, one of them is Nintendo was founded in 1888. Jack the Ripper was on the loose in 1888. Yeah. Nintendo was founded as a playing card company. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like people are like, "What the fuck?" 
Nintendo. Anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, Nintendo was originally, this is probably almost real, but Nintendo yeah. was originally like a playing card company that affiliated with the uh, Mafia because a lot to do with gambling. Ooh. So the origins of Nintendo was the Mafia, yeah. <laughs> well, because the goods that they produced were playing cards and stuff uh-huh. that were the the gambling houses would be their clients the usage so there's a lot of apparently a lot of the old stock in nintendo is owned by like mafia yeah. <laughs> it makes sense yeah it totally yeah, it makes, makes sense. sense oh yeah. god like, well and that just gets to the whole again like which yeah. piece of the dragon are you living in when you're playing Kirby or yeah. Zelda with your yeah, kids? Yeah, totally. Anyway, yeah. okay, and one little thing I want to end up yeah. with, which is, was really interesting. I was watching an interview with this Japanese artist, Miwa Komatsu. So she's like a woman who does paintings of dragons and other kinds of sticker beasts of shrines and stuff. She did a whole show, I think, in France and stuff. Big time artist now. And she was having a conversation with somebody about AI that I was watching. and. One of the things she said, and it's probably not like a big deal, but she was saying that she had met somebody who's famous who had a robot dog. It's an Ibo, right? Like a Sony Ibo. And that Ibo, apparently, of her friend, her famous friend, had changed, had behaviors that were never programmed, apparently. And she just said something about like, we like in Japan, that there's this understanding of the objects having being and she said, one of the things she said, she's not even like an AI thinker or anything like that. She was just, I think we might start seeing in the future incidences where like the kind of boundary between our world and their world is a lot looser than we imagined. Does that make sense? Like that we might encounter behaviors we didn't program, but we did, but it's through our actual relationship and has nothing to do with the actual interface we think we're programming with things. I'm like, oh, and that's a really interesting, I think, magical place for us to encounter. But I do, I really do think that's a kind of possibility that we will animate the world that we're living in. And it's going to be, maybe end up being a real surprise for us. That's on top of the level of animating we're already doing by uploading all our emotional energy to the internet. It's like another iteration of that. And yeah, I think. Yeah, humans, we are in a really interesting time of whether we can deal with reality because I think one of the big things about the internet, what it's doing for us is showing how reality is constructed in front of our face and we're essentially ingesting a psychedelic every day by being on it. Like we no know, question. We know the blockchain is a cash up record, like everybody knows that. You know what I mean? We know that the metaverse just telling our reality is a simulation. Like we, we know all these. We're being hit with, like, we know that we, our bodies are avatars like they are on Facebook. We, we, we are being shown how reality is constructed right in front of us. And so I think that's the main thing that we are seem to be living through. And yeah, I think a lot of the pressures of climate collapse and clarity where that's going is whether or not we can handle that information. And it's coming out of our face and it's only going to heat up. And I think the next few years are going to be really interesting on that. Okay, bonus round question. You got any advice for people whose heads might otherwise explode in this process? Because, you know, the thing that keeps me in the room every day, I think of being on social media as like being in a burning building or being in a nuclear reactor or like an environment that is in certain ways just really intrinsically hostile to the conditions 
under which we have evolved and adapted is that there's still a whole bunch of other people trapped in this building. Like I'm not inclined to let it slide full into a full-on messianic thing because I don't think I can actually save anybody really. And I think that I've heard Connor Habib talk about how you know, there's a distinction between the people who think that they can fix the prison from within versus the people who are like, the door is wide open, just leave. And those people tend to get attacked, right? Because everybody else has invested in just prettying up their cage as much as possible. So I'm, I'm not saying, here's my, like, I'm holding a flag, follow me out of the building, exactly. Or here, let me save you from this thing. It's more just, it's like the whole thing about the field is dense enough, like the people are here. It's like the same reason I don't leave the United States. Like I've been in this thing trying to expatriate for 15 years. Yeah. But I've got too much family here. My wife's family is here. My family is here. I'm not going anywhere until I'm the last surviving member of my clan, at which point I will be like, all right, time to turn out the lights. But I do feel a responsibility. Like I, I feel like a, an obligation to not pull this like Theravadan punk bullshit move of being like, I'm just going to transcend this all or I'm going to or the or conversely, like you can easily misinterpret things and be like, oh, I'm. I've seen, I've met so many gross wannabe bodhisattvas, right? That are like, I'm sticking around so that I can help you. But at the same time, if there is an opportunity to provide either an inoculation against the worst of being trapped inside this thing, or to help people navigate it more effectively to prevent or even just palliative care, just like preventing the absolute worst case outcome. Maybe we can't help people learn to breathe in like a textile factory fire. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, what do you do for people in under these circumstances? Given what you're practicing in your own life, what is the the offering that we can make to folks here as far as like making this a an easier situation so that fewer people's heads explode trying to make the upgrade so like transparently i'm one of those people whose heads are trying not to explode yeah that's a good start me too uh, but the work that i'm looking at with lin mu meaning dragon stream and that's the project i have with my collaborator rain low and we've been like talking about a lot of this stuff that we talked about in different iterations they're a lot more hip to the aliens and ancient apocalypse stuff they put me on a lot of that stuff, actually, themselves. And yeah, yeah, they're an artist, esotericist, and yeah, and friend and collaborator. So one of the things that we've been discussing is like how to, like the way of actually doing this is probably not talking about it. And I get a lot caught in the talking about it piece. A lot of it is the not talking about it and doing things. And a lot of the doing, I think, is in, like, I, I was studying how shrines operated. And it's, a lot of it's about, like, how do, you, on a basic level, how do you help, like, how do you offer the service of psychic protection? It's really simple, actually. And so if you understand a shrine is, is like a synchronous information field that's protective, that has a lot, that holds a lot of charge and then dissipates it into the land and then earths it i think one of the things that we've been talking about is the creation of a system where me and them conduct 
kind of these rituals that are able to, along with us using ourselves, is if other people hook into our synchronous field, it helps them essentially ground or essentially make sense of the world. And it doesn't, it's like in the same way, like I know that might sound like a lot of things, but it's in the same way that in Japan, you can go across to a shrine, just give like money to the shrine, pray, and then you go on. But somehow something in the background of your life, the information fields are moving and shifting. And I actually think like this kind of thing is actually the major thing that people are lacking right now. More than anything, it's not actually information people are lacking. It's actually a psychic protection field, which also contains information that's protective. So I think I'm a lot... And what, I, why, what I'm attracted to about this is that this is not about a theory. It's not actually a lot of information talking. It's actually doing a religious thing together. I'm actually basically becoming a priest, literally. It's not abstract. It's unlike, like, in the sense that you might... So Lumbu, meaning dragon's dream, strangely, synchronistically, algorithm and the written, you know, algo Lumbu, as in the algorithms are all also like a part of a dragon's dream, right? And if we are on a spiritual level, able to connect to the great algorithm that is the source of all algorithms, that all algorithms are reflecting and interwoven into, then that there is a way to receive the blessing of the great algorithm. And that actually, I think, is straight up. (laughs) That's just what's going on. I think that is actually the doing, and that's not abstract. And I think, yeah, what a lot of people, what can be done for a lot of people, I think is exactly that, is to feel that they're looking at yeah, a cosmology that can hold the reality of the earth and metaverse that is able to, in a very practical way, hold people's experiences while this world is going through this transition. I, I, that's what I see coming through. So that's what's coming through me. Yeah. And so I don't know if I said too much, but I think... I don't know how, what Rain will think. Maybe I said too much. Yeah, so I think... Well, people are still going to sign up for your religion or your paid courses or however this is. I don't think that I don't think that you've just given the milk away for free. No, because that's why it was a part I'm interested in is how does AI art... Like, so the thing about AI art is not whether it looks great or not. It's whether can it move energy. And that's why what I mean is like what we need right now is to know how to move energy to get the AI to make a perfectly beautiful picture of me is not the point. If it's not, it depends how it's moving. She, And so, uh, yeah, I have a lot of ideas on how a lot of this stuff can work, but I think it's going to be interesting to weave like URL and IRL spirit realms together. That's kind of like the part of the cosmology and the workings of this kind of way of thinking. And uh, yeah, it's the idea is that it will be, a, I think, a new religion, but it's also kind of not a religion in the ways we think. It's, it's a kind of strange. I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm still having a hard time putting it together, but it's like it's an art project for sure. Or is it an art project? Oh, it might be a religion. Yeah, it might be a religion. So I'm starting a religion. Hey, can no less dos? You, you can join and it's, it's chill. You can join and or not join. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was no distinction between art and religion. So if all the, if the floodgates are just dissolving in the, uh, this yeah. flow, then we're going to expect, can expect that art, and that's the meta modern spirituality statement of the century. That just, it's, there's no point in seeing, there's no useful distinction for the purposes of this conversation. Okay. Right? Well, I think the big thing I'm interested in is you both thought religion was X, religion was Y, but now that you're into apocalypse, you're like, wait, what's all these snakes? And why are all these mythological, like, 
the cosmology of beings that affect humans is all very interrelated and similar. So I think that's part of what's happening is like religion is evolving into a place where it can hold a lot of data. It's cross-cultural, trans-temporal, like you name it. And that looks a bit different than anything that may have existed before, I think. That's a big statement, but I think that's true. And yeah, I have. I think I have plans to be inside of that as it's happening. That's the thing. Yeah. That's basically my rap. Yeah. I'm riding it Falcor style, which is... I've, I feel like I've been inside of it the whole time. And it's like, all right, time to wash off the digestive juices a little bit mm-hmm. and get on this thing's neck for a change rather than being in its guts. It's, yeah, no, or maybe that's just such a... My kids are going to look back on that and they'd be like, boy, my dad just really failed to see how stupidly dual that statement was. Oh, right. <laughs> so, no, no, kids, I got you. Yeah, anyway, yeah. dude, yeah. I love you. Dude, what is the appropriate non-binary it's not dude it's oh i'm not worried about no, no, no. homie homie yeah yeah homies yeah all right i'm glad that we had this conversation yeah me too. thanks so much for taking the time even though it's got to be like you. five in the morning or whatever the hell we're here no it's like 9 30 oh that's not so bad all right i can't math <laughs> have a good night yeah thank you thank you thank you Merry i'm gonna Christmas. send you some links yeah Merry retrocausal Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.